Hello, and welcome to The Key Podcast, where we talk about theology in every season of life. I'm your host, Sarah Evans, and together we're asking, if Christ is the key to everything, then what are the questions that we get to ask and the things we get to discover? Every fortnight, we discuss systematic theology in bite-sized portions, and along the way, together, we're learning to see and know God in every season of life, whether we're in the spotlight, on the edge, or simply being faithful in the mundane. I'm so excited to have you with us. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm going to start things off a little bit differently this week as we are getting into things. Um, I want to give a sort of update on my Patreon, and this is not like a plea for you to join or um, exactly an advertisement, but I did have someone who asked recently about my Patreon. They asked how things were going there and what kind of stuff I had on there. And I realized that I do not talk about my Patreon very often and that it might actually be of use or interest to some of you. So I just want to give a brief update on that and then we'll get into what we're really talking about today. So first of all, why do I even have a Patreon? It is not to make money or to monetize the podcast. Um, I just want to be really clear about that. I have a Patreon account because I was looking for a platform through which I could interact with people um, a little bit more one-on-one, well, or even in a group setting, um, a way in which I could have um, ongoing dialogue, right? So I love recording these podcast episodes. I sort of love envisioning you sitting here with me, enjoying a cup of tea with me or coffee or what have you. And I appreciate that kind of imagined framework in which I do these podcasts as I'm recording for you, right? And yet there isn't an ongoing dialogue there. There's not a sense of community. And of course, I am really sensitive to the fact that an online kind of communal presence on something like Patreon is certainly not the same as sitting down in person, right? I teach both in residence and online, and there is a vast difference between the two. And yet, thanks to technology, we do have the opportunity to have a sort of pseudo community of learners together on something like Patreon if you wanted to. So that is the main reason that I have a Patreon page is to kind of develop some community, have the chance to interact and offer uh, the chance for people to go deeper in these topics if they would like to and to ask questions and get more responses, um, not just from me, but from one another, right? So while it would be nice to eventually get reimbursed for the microphone that my husband purchased when I first started doing this, that is not the goal, and I don't necessarily foresee that happening anytime soon. Um, with that explanation of why I have the Patreon, let me tell you a little bit about what's on it in case you're interested. So I have extra episodes there. Uh, they are not necessarily related to the topics that I do here in the main podcast. So recently I um, presented, in a sense, uh, a paper that I had written. It's uh, related to my thesis work from my PhD, and it was a paper I had given at a seminar in uh, my PhD program at the University of Otago. And so I broke that down into a couple of episodes, and it's on beauty. How do we know God through beauty? How does God manifest himself through beauty? What does it mean to have a theology of beauty? So uh, 
obviously it's systematic theology, but it's sometimes a little bit more nuanced or a little bit more niche in a sense of what gets to be uh, featured on the Patreon. I also am starting a book club on Patreon because who doesn't need another book club in their life? Um, This uh, book club is not just for reading intense theology, though I do envision we might do some of that. Right now, we're reading Holly Ordway's book, Tales of Faith, A Guide to Sharing the Gospel Through Literature. I love this notion. How is the gospel displayed even in a limited fashion through something like literature, through the arts? And Ordway's written a whole book on this. Holly Ordway is an incredible scholar. She's a Tolkien scholar. So she has a lot um, that she's working with in terms of presenting these ideas to us. And so I'm really looking forward to reading that alongside Patreon subscribers and then having a Zoom session for us to discuss it. Um, If you are interested in coming to that Zoom session without signing up for the Patreon as a whole, I would love to hear from you. Let's figure out a way to make that happen because maybe you want to come into the book club, have a feel for things without overly committing. So get in touch. We're having our first meetup on April 1st, which I know is April Fool's. What a day to pick. I wasn't thinking about that when I was looking at the calendar, (laughs) but that is just what happened. Um, So we're going to have our first meetup and talk about the first few chapters of her book. And I'm really looking forward to that. I would love to have you join us. Um, The final thing I'm working on with Patreon is some downloadable things for the church year. Speaking of which, if there is something that would be instructive or useful for you, please, please drop me a line. And I would love to uh, try to develop something within that framework of um, what you're looking for. I can't promise it will be exactly what you're looking for or that it will be perfect, but would love to kind of take a stab at it and give it a try. So you can drop me a line about that sort of thing on my website, which is thekeypodcast.org. And there's a contact form on there under the tab of contact. I would love to hear from you what would be useful to you, what would be beneficial and of interest. So that would be really great. Okay. So that's um, a little update on like why I have a Patreon, what the goal is and some of the stuff that's on there. If you want just some freebies, some free content and resources, you can go to my website and sign up for my newsletter. Um, I actually just wrote the email for March, and it goes out later this week. Uh, It has book suggestions, um, a brief reflection article from me. This month it's on Lent and wilderness. And usually I also include something from the realm of art. This month I included a poem from John Donne and a little bit on that, a couple of sentences about it. So, um, I would love to have you sign up for that. That's totally free and there's no commitment of any kind other than reading, I suppose, but that's on you. (laughs) So anyway, there's those couple of extra things in addition to listening to episodes here, which is why you're here. So let's get down to it. This week, I'm going to be talking about sources of theology. So we've been talking a lot about um, what does it mean to know? How do we know God? Um, How does he make himself known? What are the things that we think encapsulate 
knowledge. How can we know, right? Is the is reality really there for us to be known? Does it exist apart from our acknowledging it? All of those kinds of questions in epistemology. And before that, we had talked a little bit about God's self-revelation, <clears throat> excuse me, and how he makes himself known, right? This uh, week, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we might call sources for theology, right? Some of this I kind of hinted at in an earlier podcast, like way back last year, actually, which is wild to say that I've now been doing this for a year. A lot has happened in that year. Um, it's I hinted at it in an episode um, on theological method, and I talked about how different ways of doing theology emphasize different sources. Uh, to different amounts, or they uh, think that different sources have more weight or more authority, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about sources for theology and then kind of um, how we draw some of that together. So this might be a little bit of a review for some of you, but I think it's helpful um, kind of summation of what I've been talking about for a few weeks and then moving forward into um, some other things related to theology and who God reveals himself to be. So when we're talking about sources for theology, one of the main things that we generally discuss, of course, is scripture, right? Scripture can sometimes be referred to as a canon, right? So maybe you've heard the canon of scripture or you've just heard it called a canon. And this is a canon with one N between the A and the O. It is not a canon like on a ship that's being fired off in war. Canon in this sense means a rule or a measuring rod. And this really comes to us from early in the church's history, from about 397, when the Council of Carthage uses this language and is talking about scripture as the canon, the rule or the measuring rod that we hold other things up against in order to determine whether or not they are valid. We have early accounts of New Testament books that were used as kind of that measuring rod, that rule of faith. Um, as the church was developing and uh, articulating its doctrine in a really kind of specific way, there were there. Ugh, excuse me. There were specific criteria for including each of those books in the canon, right? So uh, we often talk about them as apostolicity. Who was the author, right? So was it a apostle? Is that able to be verified? Or was it someone who is related to an apostle in some manner? So Mark, not a disciple, but tradition tells us that Mark was a disciple um, of Peter, who obviously was one of the disciples. And so when Mark writes his gospel, um, he's probably drawing on Peter's memory, right? So that apostolicity question. And then orthodoxy, does this fit with what the church says it has believed? Does it fit with the witness um, provided by the Old Testament? And does it fit in with um, Jewish understandings of God, morality, salvation, etc.? Of course, there's not an identical um, overlap, but there is overlap, right, between those because we would say that Christianity grows out of the roots of uh of Judaism, right? It's not a totally separate religion. Um, and so there should be that kind of overlap and fluidity. So that's some of the views on orthodoxy, because there were a number of books that were very outlandish in a sense, uh, when you compared them to the things that make it into the New Testament. Um, and then we also have this question of antiquity. How long has it been in circulation? How often 
Um, do we see it being referenced in the early church? And then also its use in worship, right? Is this something that has been used by a wide variety of the churches across the Mediterranean world um, as the church has developed? Or is this something that was like a favorite of that church over there um, and not over here? And so that kind of question, that one's a little bit more loosey-goosey, obviously, in terms of being a criteria, but it, it was it was certainly there still, right? So something like the Gospels used quite broadly, um, something like the Shepherd of Hermas, some great teaching in there, but um, had a little bit more of a narrower audience, right? So that those are some things that were reflected upon as books were being debated about whether or not they should be in the canon and have authority. Um, but we do need to keep in mind that we don't just have the New Testament, we also have the Old Testament, and that together they compromise, they comprise, excuse me, a unity, right? So there are those individuals who will want to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament, um, whether that's related to its portrayal of God or the law or something else along those lines. Um, and the church has said that that's not true, right? Historically, throughout the church's years and age, we have always said there is a unity between these two. They reveal the same God. They reveal one covenant, or sometimes we talk about a couple of covenants, but we have consistency between the two. And so that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. I think this is especially true in certain circles of evangelicalism, where we don't always talk about the Old Testament very frequently, and we don't always know what to do with it. Um, and so sometimes we can unintentionally suggest that one is more significant than the other, or that we adhere to one and not the other. So just something to be, you know, wrestling with, keeping in mind. Um, and honestly, something to be thinking through in our personal lives as well as in our churches. So in addition to scripture, we also have other sources for theology. One of these is tradition. So the early church had, um, in a sense, this rule of faith. Um, it was, uh, according to early church scholar um, Andy Kelly, a, a kind of manifestly a summary drawn up for catechetical purposes or for preaching. It gives the gist of the Christian message in a concentrated form. I really like that, um, the couple of things he says there. It was drawn up for catechetical purposes and for preaching, right? So for teaching people who are new into the faith and then preaching. Um, it kind of provided a foundation, a baseline for people as they were preparing their sermons to speak and instruct and then it also gives the gist of the Christian message, right? This rule of faith. And it's not all the details. It's the summary. It's the outline. It's a concentrated, concise way of talking about the faith. That is what we call the rule of faith or a rule of faith, right? That's the early kind of origins of tradition. And then that tradition, of course, gets built on um, over the next 2,000 years of church history, there are a couple of different ways in which we talk about utilizing tradition. Um, for instance, the radical reformers in the Reformation, so those would be like the Anabaptists, really don't have um, a lot of a lot of confidence in tradition. 
there's this real intense focus on we're just going to get back to basics and we're just going to get back to what they said they were doing in the New Testament. Uh, I really see a lot of, you know, value in that desire. And yet, even within the New Testament, we see that there are a variety of practices that are happening, say, in church governance. And there are also traditions that are impacting how people interact with one another and with scripture and with God, even in the New Testament, right? If you were a Jewish Christian, that shaped your interaction with God. If you were a Gentile Christian, that shapes your interaction with God. And so I am sometimes concerned when we want to discard tradition that we are acting like we exist in a vacuum. And we all know that that's not true. And so as a part of recognizing our human nature and um, the way that God has gifted us with ancestors, with traditions, with ways of understanding the world that do sometimes need adjustment, but they do exist and we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, I think we need to make some space for tradition. Now, then there are two other kind of ways of talking about tradition, primarily. There's this kind of like single source theory, which is what a lot of the sort of magisterial reformers fall into. So wanting to interpret scripture within the community of the faith, right? And so we're going to read scripture and that's our primary source. And then we have this other sort of commentary on scripture. And we're going to look to that and we're going to listen to the wisdom there, but we're primarily going to look at scripture. That's kind of like our single source, our primary or only source. And then you have what you could maybe call like a dual source or two source theory. This is generally associated with um, Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions. Uh, Here, tradition and scripture are two separate Uh, entities, right? So we have scripture and then we have the body of tradition, the teachings of the church, the magisterium of the church, right? And these are almost like distinct sources of revelation. It's not that we have scripture and then a commentary on scripture. It's that we have scripture and tradition and they are largely equal. Um, I am not as convinced by that because uh, we see even in the tradition of orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism that there are differentiating views, right? Um, There are diverse views, right? That's why we have Dominicans and Franciscans and Jesuits. This is why we have Antiochian Orthodox and Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox. Uh, Obviously, those last few that I named are geographically located, but they will have their own emphases even within those kind of geographic locations. And with the Roman Catholic question, there are different emphases in the different sort of streams within Catholicism. And sometimes those things overlap really nicely, and sometimes they diverge a bit. And so I am not as convinced that tradition should be on the same level as scripture. Um, and, And so I probably fall a little bit more into that middle ground where the reformers want to have scripture being our primary bedrock, um, but do want to honor what we have in tradition, right? That we are not going to just get rid of it. We're not going to pretend like we exist in a vacuum and we're not going to, you know, 
ignore the gift of wisdom that has been given to us from 2,000 years of church history, right? Many people um, much smarter than you and I have been talking about these things for a number of years. So, okay, so that's two sources of theology, right? We have uh, scripture and then we have tradition. The next um, source that we often talk about for theology or theological reflection is reason. Uh, sometimes we have questions around how do we understand reason and our ability to reason on things scripturally because of the effect of sin. Uh, and so then we get into this question about natural theology. Are we able to look at the world and sort of ascend up to God, not salvifically, but in terms of our knowledge of who God is, right? That's natural theology. Or do we need to have a sort of abrupt revelation? I mentioned this with Karl Barth, um, uh, gosh, a few weeks ago, about how Barth thought because of the fall, because of our limitations and our finitude, we have to have God dramatically break in and reveal himself to us. I think there's definitely something to that. And yet I also think we can see in Revelation that God makes himself known in the world. He makes limited knowledge of himself available in the world. And so I think we can, again, have kind of a both and. We do need to have a lot of humility when we approach theology and reason because we have to accept that our sin affects us. It is impactful. It does something to us, right? And so we are, again, not in a vacuum. I'm affected by my sin. I'm affected by the sin of people around me. And so our reason is not um, pure. It is not completely objective, right? Doesn't mean we don't have reason. Doesn't mean we can't use it. Um, but certainly need to tread with a little bit of caution there. The same thing goes for um, the use of experience as we talk about theology. So Michael Bird talks about um, experience as being kind of like a validating norm in theology. So it shouldn't be our norma normans, meaning it shouldn't be the bedrock of our theological understanding. But experience instead can be kind of like the validation. This is what I believed intellectually. Now I have experienced it. I had a student uh, last semester. We were talking about... Hmm, that's a really good question. I don't remember how we got onto this, but the student was making a comment about um, a sort of like theological infancy, right? And what that uh, relationship is between theological uh, infancy and ministry work. And the student made the comment of like, we don't know what we haven't yet experienced. And what they were referencing was, when we're talking about ministry, it's hard to have answers for situations that you haven't walked through, right? Um, to have really good answers, I should say. You're going to have pat answers that maybe we've like found in a book, but that's different from an answer that you have from your own experience, right? Um, it's sort of like 
the difference between thinking when I become a parent, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and my children will behave like A, B, C, and this is how our family will look. And then you have children and you realize what an idiot you were because they are whole persons and they are not blank slates. And so there is only so much we can do. Um, We can do a lot as parents and yet they are human beings. And so there's some humility that needs to be had there, right? And so that kind of validating norm of experience then is, is like what my student was saying. We can know a lot intellectually, and then when we experience it, either in ministry or for ourselves personally, we will be able to know it and know what to do with it, right? Or like as a parent, we can think that we know what parenting will be like from reading lots of books, and then when we become a parent, we will actually know what parenting is like. Right. And so experience is not um, that bedrock, but it is like a validating norm. Now, there are lots of ways to kind of put these things together, right? Reason, tradition, experience, and scripture. Um, one of the famous ways of putting it together is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, scriptures at the bottom, you know, that's sort of it, uh, of the quadrilateral, which is a trapezoid specifically. And so scripture's at the bottom because that's the biggest line and it's the base, right? And then you have tradition, which is above, um, it's on the top. And so like, we're going to read tradition through the lens of scripture. And then you have reason and experience on either side, right? They're kind of equal and, um, they are not central, You also have um, this image of a three-legged stool, which often gets attributed to Richard Hooker. I don't actually think it's in any of Hooker's works, but because of that, it um, is often associated with Anglicanism. And there you have scripture, which is like the seat of the stool, right? And so it's the thing that you sit on. It's um, the, the thing that's connecting the other sources. It's the most important, right? And then you have these three legs of the stool, which are reason, experience, and tradition. And so those are kind of all put on the same level under scripture. I think it's important for us as we are looking at how we know what we know, how we assess claims of truth, for us to have this kind of image in our mind, right? We need to think about what do I see as being the sources for theology and how does that then relate with what I think it means to know? How does um, experience both intellectually, emotionally, and in my body relate to what I think it means for experience to feed into my theological system, my way of understanding and interacting with God? Um, As we are in different church settings, what does it mean to involve tradition, to experience the wealth of tradition, but also to be honest about some of the limitations of tradition, some of the ways in which we haven't always done well as the church, right? And so how does that then play in? Which one is going to be primary? Which one is going to have the most authority? Those are things that are kind of cohere with what we've been discussing in terms of how we know what we know, right? Um, And the importance, of course, of God's self-revelation. And I, that's why 
I bring this up. So we've talked a bit about this um, when I've talked about theological method, but I wanted to bring it back up and put it in front of y'all because I think it's an important way of tying together um, the last kind of two topics that I've been discussing, right? God's self-revelation, both in nature, in human personhood, in reason, and philosophy, and then explicitly his self-revelation in scripture and in the incarnation, right? Um, so you'll probably gather from that that I think scripture should be primary in terms of its authority, its weight, its significance in our theological system. And then um, how the others kind of relate into that in terms of how do we know what we know? How does my experience shape what I believe and my experience of reality, right? And how is my experience of reality and my experience of God's self-revelation as I am being transformed, how is that shifting my theological system? And um, as I come to know God more and more, how is my experience reflecting that? What are things in my experience that I maybe have misinterpreted that need to come under uh, scripture that need to be submitted to scripture and what God reveals about himself or submitted to the church and to the church's authority um, and what the church has taught about who God is and who we are. And so there is some important corollary between all of those different questions. So I think that's about it for today. Um, thanks for sticking with me through that. Maybe a little bit less exciting, um, but I do want to encourage you that though it might not be the most thrilling of a topic, it is still an important one and it's necessary really for us to be thinking through that. Um, I will just leave off with a general blessing for those of you who are submitting to the church's tradition and walking through this season of Lent. Um, I'm praying that Lent is a time of rich reflection for you, that it is a season in which your experience of God demonstrates his tender love for you, even in the seasons of wilderness, even in seasons of sorrow and suffering. I've been thinking a lot about wilderness um, in this season of Lent, and I am hopeful that you are experiencing a season of disorientation and that that disorientation causes you to fall more and more upon the grace of Christ. Um, seasons of wilderness are hard, friends. I think all of life in some ways is Lent. All of life is walking through the wilderness. And yet, <laughs> um, that wilderness is where God meets his people right? Hosea talks about how God woos his people in the wilderness, and he speaks tenderly to Israel. And I'm praying that in this season of Lent, he speaks tenderly to you also. All right, my friends, I am going to leave you with that. I love you. Peace to each of you. Friends, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of The Key. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really helps others to find the podcast. And that's actually the goal, to share the gospel and make theological education available for the benefit of the church in every season. If you want to get in touch, head on over to the website, thekeypodcast.org. You can also check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thekeypodcast. 
There you'll find exclusive episodes, a book club, and materials for members. Also, I really love hearing from listeners, so please sing out and get in touch if you want. Until next time, God's grace and peace to each of you.